we're kicking off a new series today, and it's called Be Prepared, okay? Now, there's a reason you saw the verse, hopefully, early on, but it's, it comes from our theme verse that we're looking at. But uh, when I was thinking about the, the uh, well, two, I had two thoughts uh, when I, we, we, ne- we titled this. One was, I really wanted to, to have the theme music um, be Scar from The Lion King. You guys remember that? When Scar sang, be, be prepared, you know? And I'm really hoping Shin will pull that off at some point. Um, he can sing it. Um, uh, before the end of the thing. But I thought about that. But then they also thought about, you know, just that part of us that really longs to be prepared, or at least we have a fear of what it would be like to not be prepared. So, uh, you, you know, I was like this as a kid. How many of you guys have ever remember those dreams you had where you showed up at school and there was a test that day or there was an exam and you really weren't ready? Like, you, you, know, you know how dreams are. It's like you show up and then all of a sudden you're in the exam, you know, and you weren't really prepared for it. Does anybody nod your head if you're with me? You ever had those dreams, right? Or maybe it's more uh, recent. Maybe it's like you don't like to speak in front of people or, you know, you got to do a presentation at work or something along those lines. And all of a sudden you've got to get up and do something. And, you know, I mean, I've had that dream where, I mean, I, I like to talk in front of people, but I've had that dream where all of a sudden, like, I'm up standing in front of people, and then I look at my notes, and there's nothing there, and, you know, and it's like, I totally forgot to prepare, which would be, un- which would be odd for me, you know? Um, the baseline of that dream is where you show up, and you're naked. You guys all know what I'm talking about? Like, you, you just show up wherever, and it's like, I forgot to dress today. Um, that's, that's that same kind of root thing across the board of, like, we just don't like not being prepared for something. That's like, that's, I mean, again, sometimes more than others, but there's a part of us that we feel like we don't really like that. And uh, I was thinking through just where we are as a culture, where we are as a church, just what it is that we're called in terms of scripturally to be prepared to do uh, as Christians. And where does that really kind of narrow us down in terms of of, um, kind of where we are? Is the church really prepared uh, to discuss some of the things we should be prepared to discuss and um, kind of matters in terms of the state of our culture. Now, I'm going to give you a few statistics. This comes from um, a Gallup uh, poll and study that was that has been done uh, actually fairly recently. But they've been they've been you know for as long as they've been gathering stuff or as long as they've had the ability to kind of do these polls and that kind of thing. Basically, from about World War II on, you could bank on pretty much for what 60 plus years. You could bank on. Um, Basically, about 90-plus percent, and it always kind of floated somewhere in the 90s, uh, in terms of America, that people believed in God, okay? Now, don't, don't drill into that a little bit more. Just the big general picture, like they would basically state, yeah, I believe there's a God or a higher power, or, you know, something they call God, whatever it is. It was about 90, it, was, it topped off about 98%, but overall, you know, for that long period of time, it was above 90%. Now, something happened in that sort of 2011 to 2013 time frame, it began to shift. And Gallup kind of showed us that, well, now it's down to about 87%. But that shift was the, the start of what was considered a much steeper decline to where the most recent poll puts us at 80%. That one out of every five people really does not at all in any way, shape, and form believe in God or a higher power or whatever you, know, whatever you call it. Now, again, that's not the way you and I might define the word God. That's just the big, big, broad ideas. The way you and I would define the word God is that there, there's a personal God who answers and hears prayers, uh, answers and intervenes in our lives. And when Gallup kind of drills down into that, the number goes down to actually about 42%. That about 
actually believe that there's a personal God that knows who you are and answers prayers and, um, you know, intervenes in our life. And that's a big deal. That's a big problem, especially for us. Why? Because we believe that people spend eternity somewhere. You know, we believe everyone is going to spend eternity somewhere. And as followers of Christ, we need to be paying attention to some of the decline that is happening and trying to figure out, you know, what we can do about it. Now, I want you to understand that the, the reasons for the, you know, this decline, the reason for the, what they've seen in the last decade, um, there's lots of reasons. And there's lots of reasons that have been really formed decades in the making in terms of kind of resulting now. But I, wanna, I want us as a church to focus in on the church side of the equation. I want us to focus in on, on, um, on where we are as followers of Christ and as Christians. I think it comes around two ideals, two doctrines that I really do believe have been misunderstood, have been mistaught, and, um, and that Christians struggle with when they, when they really shouldn't. And these two big ideas are evangelism and apologetics. Now, if you've been around Journey for a while, hopefully you've gotten a better understanding of how we would talk about evangelism. But evangelism, nonetheless, in the Christian, kind of Western Christian culture, there does seem to be sometimes a little bit of a flavor to the, to the you know, the kind of the street preacher or the, the guy with the sandwich board, you know, on, you know, and the standing at the corner kind of beating, throwing the Bible out and beating people over the head with it. And, you know, or maybe it's, you know, the people at work or people online who kind of Jesusify everything on you, you know, and somebody comes in from the office and is like, boy, it's hot outside. And they're like, you know, what's really hot? Hell, you know? I mean, they just sort of find any moment at all to kind of jump into the conversation and add Jesus to the conversation. And, and, and that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about evangelism. But th- I know that it kind of gets that flair sometimes or that flavor. Um, apologetics is another one of those that's really misunderstood. Like it's not, by the way, it's not apologizing for being a Christian. Just to let you know, that's not what apologetics actually is. Apologetics comes from a Greek word, and we'll talk about it here uh, today in terms of what it means to sort of have a, uh, make a defense or an argument or have a, understand the reasoning behind something. And so apologetics, again, for some reason, the way it's taught, the way it's kind of communicated, the way people have understood it, has kind of become this thing that most, you know, it's really just scholars, you know, it's professors, it's pastors, it's, it's people who have done incredible depth and study around certain things so that they can kind of, kind of attack this, you know, debating apologetics with somebody um, who, you know, who has an opposing view. And, and I'm not saying that's not necessarily how we use uh, the term apologetics, but in terms of where we get that word from, it's not necessarily what we believe every Christian um, um, has to have that same kind of depth and breadth of study because that's what most people feel like, well, I don't know enough, therefore I don't, I don't have an opinion. I can't answer these things. And at Journey, we kind of, we kind of simplify these two ideas um, around really simple statements. Just what does it mean for us to share the good news, to share what we call the absolute hope of who Jesus is, and then to have a response, right, about the reason why. Like to share the good news, to share who Jesus is with someone and, and to respond in such a way that we actually know the reason why. Around Journey, if you've ever heard us talk about it, we, we use a term called top five. Raise your hand if you've ever heard us talk about our top five. Yeah, here at Journey. If you're new, I'll go ahead and give you the, the brief summary. The top five around for here for us is we like to talk about the fact that you uh, have a center 
of influence, a center of responsibility that God has placed you in your life where you are and around you. Um, you're connected to whether it's family or friends or coworkers or you know people that know your kids and you know you know sports teams and groups and groups and clubs and gyms and things you're connected to. You you have all these places where you're sort of rubbing shoulders and we use the term top five just to help you identify that there's more than likely at least five people in your life, again, in your circle, that are probably far from God, but they're close to you, right? They, they, they don't have a relationship with God the way you do, or the way you think, you know, you, you can see in terms of evidence. And so you look at them, and you're like, okay, well, they're, they're far from God, but they're, they're close to me. So it's my responsibility to pray for them, intentionally pray, and look for opportunities to share faith and look for opportunities to serve. We call it sharing and serving and, and opportunities as well to, to just, you know, again, if they ask us a question and have, be ready, you know, when they, when they have that conversation, like, oh, I've been praying for this. I have an opportunity to, to respond. And that's really what we're talking about, that we really see evangelism and, and kind of apologetics as the root, again, the root of these two ideas is around those two, those two things, sharing the gospel, sharing the good news, and responding with sort of the why behind what we believe. So our theme verse comes from, if you saw it in terms of Peter, it comes from a letter that Peter wrote the church. And uh, Peter, just in case you didn't know this, just a reminder of who Peter is, right? Peter was super disciple, right? So Peter was one of the, one of the close three. <clears throat> he was sort of the super disciple with Jesus, you know, uh, to the max pretty much in all his responses to Jesus, you know, Jesus at the very end is like, ah, they're going to crucify me. They're going to take me. And he was like, over my dead body, they will, you know, and he's chopping ears off. And you guys know I'm talking about Peter, right? And Peter goes from super, super disciple to super zero in a matter of a day when he actually goes from over my dead body to denying who Jesus is, like denying he even knows him three times. And a lot of people in Christian circles see the denial of Christ or the rejection of Christ as an unpardonable sin. And yet, Peter is actually restored. A few days later, after Christ's resurrection on the beach of Galilee, he's restored by Jesus. And Jesus says, if you love me, go feed my sheep. Just go. And, G and Peter does. Peter goes back to sort of the now super apostle, right? And he teaches at, the, at, the, at Pentecost. And it's when the Holy Spirit comes down and everybody hears uh, the gospel, the good news in their own ear, their own language. They hear it in their ears. And, uh, and even though Peter's preaching and he, thousands come to a saving knowledge of who Jesus is. He's, he's a leader in the early church in Jerusalem. Peter's going to be sort of a, 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 a forefather, if you will, or, a, you know, uh, the, kind of the head of the church early on. And then he actually is one of my favorite stories we'll look at in a few weeks. He actually is one of the first um, of the disciples to share their faith with a, um, with, a, with a Gentile and see a whole Gentile and his family come to Jesus. That was, his name was Cornelius. It's a beautiful story. So this is Peter, and Peter writes this letter to the church, and, and he's writing to Christians, Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, but he's writing them and saying, look, look and I want to go through the whole book, but it's, it's very much about how we live as followers of Christ. Again, going back to sort of the root of what we're called to do. What is it that we're called to do? What is it called, we're called to look like and be like and, and say 
as followers of Jesus. Starts off, uh, we're going to go to 1 Peter 2. I'll bounce around a little bit till we get to Peter 3. But it says, dear friends, I want to warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Now, Paul, Peter is just very simply saying, hey, look, guys, there is a perspective you need to have in this life, and that's kind of like you're, you're a temporary resident, you know, you're, you're, a, um, you're a foreigner, so to speak, of this current environment. And he basically is saying, I don't want you to engage in the worldly stuff that's going to wage war with you. Like, there's worldly stuff happening, and that's temporary. You know, you're just a temporary citizen. Don't, don't engage in this stuff that, that, uh, that the worldly desires. You're going to keep away from those things that will go, are against your soul. Keep going. Um, it says, I want you to be careful and live properly among the unbelieving neighbors. Right? You, you want to live in a certain way that's proper among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior. And they will give honor to God when he judges the world. So he's talking about this idea that you're, you're kind of to have a different perspective, but you're also to live in such a way that's sort of above the fray. You know, you're, you're, you're to live in an honorable way that, that people see that and they recognize the difference. And he actually goes on, this is in 1 Peter 3, he gives a few examples throughout the way of what does that look like to live that honorable life. And he, he says, well, I want you to be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Boy, this is a big one for Christians. You know, to, to, to be able to respond and walk and live with humility. And then he goes on to say, don't repay evil for evil. Like, like don't look for opportunities to pay back people who hurt you, accuse you, gossip against you. You know, like, don't, don't look for those opportunities. Matter of fact, don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a, what's that word? I got a blessing for them, all right. You know, that's what most of us think, right? <laughs> Pay them back with a blessing means that really you're just you're supposed to sort of respond in a way that's countercultural. And, and then he says, that's what, by the way, just in case you didn't know, that is what God has called you to do. <laughs> Peter's reminding them. That's what God has called you to do. Respond in this way, live in this way. And then he's gonna grant you his blessing. That his blessing on you really does have to do with how you live, and especially in how you live in response to others as temporary residents, not getting caught up in the worldly stuff, and, and, and living above the fray with your unbelieving neighbors. Keep going. This moves us into uh, our key verses. It says, look, who's going to want to harm you if you're eager to do good, right? Who wants to harm Mr. Rogers? Let's just be honest, Right? Like, like, who wants to harm you if you're eager to do good? And he knows that there's persecution. He knows there's persecution among Christians. So he does go on to say, look, even if you do suffer for doing what is right, because you might, God will reward you for it. So don't worry. And don't be afraid of their threats. And I actually think this hits a little bit closer to home in terms of sort of our cultural... I mean, everybody in our, in our current day and age just lives with a certain amount of anxiety and fear. I mean, everybody just sort of operates from this kind of constant level of we worry about what other people think and what other people are going to do and what other people th say and what other people are going to respond. and how We just kind of live with this sort of constant anxiety and ultimate fear. Like, 
things could change. Things could, I could be fired. I could be ostracized. I could be whatever. And, and, and Peter's saying, look, look, try to do good. Even if you are persecuted, you're going to be rewarded for it. Like, don't, don't allow any worry or anxiety or fear to creep up here. And then he says this. <clears throat> Instead, you're going to worship Christ as the Lord of your life. This is that sharing of the good news. You're going to live in such a way that you have a Lord over your life, that you've surrendered your life to someone else other than you, and that Christ is who it is. He is the Lord of your life. And then if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. If someone asks you about this hope that you have because you live differently, you need to be ready, you need to be prepared to explain it. As a matter of fact, that's the NIV version that you saw earlier. This is our theme verse. Uh, always, say the words out loud, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Right? Always be prepared. Have that preparation in you to be able to give an answer. Now, that is where this word that we talk about apologetics, having a defense, that's where this first shows up, at least for our, in our context in terms of Peter. It's that Greek word, apologia, and it means to give a defense. Now, don't think give a defense like give an argument as in let's get into an argument, right? Give a defense basically is that, 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 that kind of terminology of, you know, if a, if a judge was getting ready to sentence somebody and you said, hey, I think you need to let hit this person go, the judge would look at you and say, why? And, and then you'd have to what? Give a defense, right? You'd have to give a reason. You have to give an argument for. That's really what this word means. It's less about the whole debating and arguing thing. It's really more about, do you know the, the, the reason why? Do you have an answer as to why? That's where it came from. Again, Paul's focused on sharing the good news, living as Christ is Lord of your life, and then responding with a reason why. Now, Notice what it does not say, especially here, as Peter's talking about individual Christians living their life in, in, the, in light of unbelievers around them. Here's what he doesn't say. Hey, be prepared, right? Be prepared to answer every biblical question someone has. Everybody with me? Like, it doesn't say that. It doesn't say, hey, get ready to answer every single thing that has ever been confusing to man about God. It doesn't say be prepared to convince others about the inerrancy of Scripture, right? Like, even though that's important, you know, we, we do, we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks in terms of the inerrancy of, the, of Scripture being our absolute truth. It's like, you don't need to prepare to, to like make that defense right now. That's not what you're doing. You know what else it, says, it doesn't say? It doesn't say be prepared to answer for every dumb thing that a dumb Christian has ever done. You guys with me? Like, it doesn't say be prepared for the hypocrisy of other Christians. Be prepared to, to explain that. Be prepared to explain all the hideous things done in Jesus' name in history. Be prepared to, to, to be able to apologize and defend everybody else who's been wrong or who's wrongly done thing in the name of Jesus. He doesn't say that. Like, don't, don't, don't misunderstand the word. That apology is... You need to know the reason why. You need to be able to respond with the why. You have the hope you have. 
right? You need to be able to respond with the why of why you believe in Jesus. Not why they should believe in Jesus. Everybody see the difference? I'm not telling, you're not supposed to be prepared to tell them why they should believe in Jesus. He says you need to be responsible with the reason of why you believe in Jesus. Why, why it matters to you. Why have you surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ? Why? That's that apologia. That's that, that heart of where Peter's saying, this is the why you have to focus on. Not that those don't matter, those other things don't matter, but not in terms of the root of that word. Now, here's the next part. He does actually continue to go into how we should do that. Because again, Peter's pretty, pretty, you know, pretty encouraging about how we're supposed to live. So he says, you're supposed to have this answer about, you know, living your life for Christ and responding with a why. But he also goes on and says, but you got to do this in a, say the words out loud, gentle and yeah. I don't know if Christians have ever read this verse. Like, like you're supposed to do it in a way. Like, I don't know where the argumentative and debating and, and, and sort of almost, you know, moral authority and having to put people down. And I don't know where any of this came from. Peter's like, you're going to have to have a conversation with people. You're going to have unbelieving people that live in your life. And, and they're supposed to see a difference in you. And when they ask you what's going on, and you've shared with them that you, you know, you've surrendered your, your life to the Lord. Well, you got to do it in a respectful way, like the same way you should already be living, with humility. Keep your conscience clear. Do you, do you know what he means by this? Keeping your conscience clear? You guys, you better, listen, first service gave me a hard time about this one. Hasn't anybody ever taken the high road? just to make the other person know what a jerk and low road they are? Is it only me? Don't lie. It's not only me. Thank you, Jen. That's what it means. It means that there's a muddy middle when you respond to things, and that muddiness comes from our flesh. That muddiness comes from, you know, oh, I'll tell you about Jesus. Let me just tell you all about Jesus, and all you really want to do is smack him around a little bit, right? Peter's like, keep your conscience clear. Keep this as pure as Jesus would want it to be. Okay? Do you really love them? Do you really want them to know Jesus? Do you want them to have absolute hope in their life? You're, you're responding in a gentle and respectful way, and you're going to keep your conscience clean and clear. Because what? This is, well, even if they speak against you, they'll be ashamed when they see the good life you live. Because why? Because again, you belong to Christ. You, Christ is the Lord of your life. And then he, says, he closes out that section with saying, look, it's better to suffer for doing good if that's what God wants than to suffer for doing wrong. Peter's basically like, look, you're going to try to navigate this thing and it's better to navigate it the way God wants you to navigate it. And, to, and if you have to suffer, suffer than for you to try to figure out how smart you are and to navigate it your way, and you're still going to suffer. Like, something's still going to come back at you. Something's still not going to be ever perfect. Like, it's going to happen. He's like, so why not do what God wants you to do? Why not, why not suffer for doing what's right? Why not suffer for him? It's so much better to do that than to suffer because of you. 
This comes back to the idea that Peter really wants you to know that, look, living this sort of selfless, generous, compassionate life, it can be unassailable, right? It can be unassailable. It can be, it can be something that you live in such a way, not because of moral authority or perfection, but that, you know, people just have a hard time coming up with dirt on you. People have a hard time getting mad. Oh, they're so generous. I hate them. Does that make sense? Like, you, mean, you might still get it, but, but what does that look like? I mean, what does it look like when, when, when Peter's saying, there is such a life to live under the lordship of Christ that, that people notice and recognize the difference, that even if they did slander, even if they did, like, because like, like, they hate you and they hate everything you stand for, that ultimately everything that they would say, they would be put to shame because they just don't have enough on you because of the life you're choosing and trying to live, because you're humble about your weaknesses and about your mistakes, you're humble about what you don't know. It, it's, it's, it can be, let me just put it that way, it can be unassailable. If we really are living to share the gospel, share the good news, and respond with the reason why we have this Lord in our life. Now, what's happening in Christian culture today is the majority of Christians don't look very much like Christ. Now, understand, that's, that's, that's not me just taking a dig. It's, it's, just, it's, a, it's a perspective that, that, that there's a gulf between Jesus and who he claims he is and then Christians sometimes and who they claim to be. There's distance there, at least from the world's perspective. And, and part of that is because when Christians don't look any different than anybody else, they're consumed by worldly, worldly desires and issues, then we live, just like everybody else, we're, we are eager to share what we think the big problem is. Just like everybody else. Not the good news. We want to share the big problem. What's the big problem? Economy. What's the big problem? Immigration. What's the big problem going on? Inflation gas prices, secret documents, you know? What's the big problem? Government, government overreach, people who don't listen to the government. And you know what's fun? We don't just share the big problem. We always know whose fault it is, too. It's Trump's fault. It's Biden's fault. It's those loony Democrats' faults. It's those crazy Republicans' faults. That's whose fault it is. It's their fault. It's the previous administration's fault. It's, it, you know... We, get, we, we don't just want to share the big problem because that's the thing that our lunches, our lunch conversations, our work conversations, our, 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 our social media posts are consumed with all these temporary worldly things that we know we want to share the big problem and whose fault it is. But guess what? We're also ready to defend ourselves. Oh yeah, we're ready. We're totally ready to respond and defend how we believe things should be, our social and our political ideology. Oh, we are, man, we've read the blogs, we've watched the things, we know the people to, to listen to, we got the podcast down, I'm finally caught up on this, I, I understand what's happening here, you know, I've gotten the, the truth sources that I, that I know are telling me the truth, and I can defend and debate you and your dumb truth sources that aren't telling you nothing. And we have a world of the church and Christianity 
that is not sharing the good news. They're not responding with the hope they have. And, they, and there's a gulf between them and their Savior from the world's perspective. And again, part of it is because we are actually being prepared and disciplined by our cable news choices. And we're being spiritually shaped by our social media and cultural trends. You are being discipled, not you guys, you guys are better. I'm talking about everybody else. But let's be honest, we're being prepared and discipled by something other than the word of God. And we spend a lot of time digesting a lot of stuff that doesn't matter for eternity. And we're being spiritually shaped by the echo chamber of whatever it is we follow and who we listen to. And that social media, cultural ideology. And it just creates this gap. Matter of fact, this is the way Gandhi said it. Gandhi said it this way, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Now, do I really care what Gandhi said as a Buddhist? No. Do I have to understand that Gandhi was saying what a majority of people sometimes actually believe? That the problem with Christianity is, the problem with Christ is Christianity. Modern day cultural Christianity. The problem with Jesus is the, is the, is the separation and the gulf between what they think they know about Jesus and what his church looks like. It's a big deal. And that wasn't always the case. It wasn't always this way. Matter of fact, one of, the, one of the positions of apologetics is not just to scripturally have a defense, but also to take in culture and history and other ways to kind of help defend not just why you believe, but what you believe, but why you believe it. And we have some incredible uh, old documents that have been preserved through time that, you know, are not really the Bible, but they, but they support everything that we read in Scripture. I'm going to share one of you today because it's a great story of the early church. This is about 70-ish years uh, after the resurrection, the time of the resurrection, there have been multiple Roman um, emperors at this time and different levels of persecution. We know that Nero, we talked about that in, in Revelation, we know that Nero was one of the lowest times in terms of, or the you know, height of persecution, sorry, the uh, lowest form of humanity, but the height of persecution in terms of Nero. Uh, but at this time, there's an emperor named Trajan, and, and in the province, the province of, uh, I can't even say the name, but it's in northern Turkey, um, he was the governor, Pliny the Younger was the governor of this thing. Now, Pliny the Younger is just a nickname for a guy who was, his father was Pliny the Elder. And so um, he was a governor in this Roman Empire. And again, very similar to, to all the other things we have in terms of recorded history, what we're getting ready to look at doesn't really mean a lot to the Roman history to, in terms of the Roman Empire's history, but it's been recorded and preserved, and so we get to see it from a Christian perspective of, what, of how Christianity was seen during the Roman Empire. So this is, again, this is about seven years later. The church is fully, fully, you know, fully happening. Lots of Gentiles coming to faith. The church is growing. Christianity's moving, and again, lots of different emperors would do different things. Well, Trajan, he ruled for about 20 years, almost 20 years. And he did have kind of an emperor worship thing where he wanted everybody devoted and dedicated to the state and to the empire. And so he, you know, like other emperors before, okay, round up the Christians. You know, all the rumors about Christians were they were 
They were criminals. They were going to undermine Rome. They didn't want to worship. They wouldn't really refuse to do emperor worship. And, you know, they, and there were some weird rumors like they were, okay, they were cannibals, okay? Like there were rumors about the, the Christians kind of being cannibalistic. And so he's like, okay, tells the governor, Pliny the Younger, round them up, persecute, figure out what's going on, that kind of thing. We have some incredible preserved letters from Trajan, Emperor Trajan and Pliny the Younger. And here's Pliny. He tells the emperor, look, my lord, it's my, it's my, patient, uh, it's my practice, my lord, to refer to you in all matters and concerning which I'm in doubt. So Pliny's having trouble with something. And for you to give me better guidance to my hesitation and inform my ignorance. He goes on to say, I've never before participated in trials of Christians, so I didn't know what to, the offenses are and what needs to be punished or investigated or to what extent. He goes on to basically say, look, we've, we've tortured some, we've put some to death, we've gotten some to um, kind of basically, you know, uh, say they d- deny Jesus and they claim you as, as Lord. And he's like, I don't know whether to put those to de- them to death or to slap them on the wrist and send them back out. Like he just wasn't sure. He'd never seen Christians before, but he's doing what the emperor commanded and he's having some trouble. He's having some doubts. And he says, look, you know, emperor, I just look to you because I've gathered up all these people and I don't know what to do. And he goes on to say, look, the sum and substance of their fault or error apparently had been that they were accustomed to meeting on a fixed day before dawn and to sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. He's like, what we've gathered from all this torture and conversation and investigation is that they were meeting on a fixed day, Sunday, by the way. They were meeting on a fixed day, Sunday, before dawn, before everyone went to work. And they were, they were singing, like, like responsively singing these songs to Christ. Can you imagine that? Like, I, I know that you guys, you know, everybody got a different view of music, you know, it's like, oh, they're... I wish they did five songs, you know. Some people are just like, oh, I came in too early. <laughs> but you know what's interesting? Like, this is, this is before Scripture. This is before the Bible. These are Gentiles who wouldn't have, had, wouldn't have looked at the Jewish uh, Old Testament as Scripture for themselves. They would have had bits and scraps and pieces of the gospel. And these hymns that they were singing were all they had to sort of respond to this Jesus who they'd surrendered their life to. And, and, and Pliny goes, yeah, they're singing to this Christ as if he's God. Like, like that's, that's a big deal. And then he goes on to say this. And they're binding themselves by an oath. They're pledging. They're, they're making commitments and promises, but not to do some crime. Remember, the rumor was that they're criminals. They weren't doing that, but, but they were binding themselves to not commit fraud, to not steal anything, not commit adultery, and to not falsify their trust, nor refuse to return trust when called upon to do so. Basically, this is integrity. This is doing what you say you'll do. So Pliny's like, so I rounded up all these horrible Christians, and they are binding themselves. They're, they're making oaths, but it's to, um, it's to not commit a crime, don't steal anything, don't sleep with someone else's wife or husband, and do exactly what you say you're going to do, you know, live as, live as a person of integrity. And, you know, Pliny's like, and you want us to do what? Like, these are probably the best citizens we have, right? 
Like he's kind of like, what, what, what do I do? These, these Christians are living out exactly what Peter said to live out. It is a, is a historical example of the church being the church. And then he ends it this way, which I just think is funny. By the way, when all this was over, their, their worship, they, they were accustomed to depart. But then they'd assemble again and partake of food. But it was ordinary and innocent food. Almost like it's disappointing. You know? It's ordinary and innocent food. And it's like, well, we, we thought they were eating flesh. Because the rumor was they were eating flesh and drinking blood. And I know this sounds really disgusting, but just understand the historical context. At that time, they, they, there was also rumors that it was the babies. Okay? Now, why, would, why, would, why in the world would you assume Christians... Okay, what was happening? Christians were going around and collecting all the children that were being discarded by the Roman Empire. They, they, they were taking care of all the children. They were, they were bringing in children that were being literally thrown out to be, to be dead. And all the Christians were rounding up the babies and raising them. And then they get some rumor that these people eat flesh and drink blood, which we all know where that comes from. <laughs> they were participating in the Lord's Supper. They were breaking bread as, and, and remembering the body of Christ broken for them. And they were drinking wine and remembering the blood that was shed for them. So we look at this and they're like, oh gosh, this is horrible, you know, just without any understanding. And finally Pliny gets in there and is like, yeah, well, it was kind of just normal food just like wine and bread and stuff. So none of the stuff we've heard is really true. And guys, this is, this is the church that we share faith with. This is the early church. This is our heritage where there was very little gap between the Jesus that they shared with people and the life that they lived. There was very little gap between the Jesus that, that they claimed to follow and the life and the oaths they were taking and the response they were making to Christ as Lord of their life, giving up their lives and persecution for their Savior. And I believe that that's possible today. I believe that's possible even with us, that we can be prepared not only to share the good news because Christ is Lord of our life, but to be able to have a response and a reason why. The question we're going to be looking at this series, and I'm going to get ready to close this out. The question we're looking at is basically this. Why have you chosen to follow Jesus? We are not looking at why other people are supposed to follow Jesus. We're not going to talk about all the, you know, the world following Jesus. I'm going to walk you through some of the apologetics and, and so that you will feel like you are prepared to know why you follow Jesus. And I believe that there's a few themes that we need to look at and we, need, we do need to study and we do need to take some consideration into how this affects our answer for this, especially when discussing it with others. Here's some of the ways in which we do that. Well, one of the first themes is that Jesus, and we're talking about Jesus as a resurrected Savior, okay? Jesus, not the teachings of Jesus, not, we're talking about the living Jesus is the only way. The only way. There's an acceptance of mercy and grace, mercy that's undeserved, grace that's unmerited. And guys, this is a huge deal. In, in the world of religion, this is a game changer. 
in terms of understanding this. And then there's an unexplainable personal transformation. I want you to know with apologetics, there is a lot that we're going to digest and uncover in terms of, you know, truth, absolute truth and reasons as to why you can explain things. But I want you to understand that at some point there's going to be, as a part of your, your true apologetics, there's going to be an unexplainable personal testimony that's part of your reason as to why I follow Jesus. Let me read these very quickly, but this is basically Peter. I want you to see it in example. I want you to see it in real life. This is just a few verses from, from this letter that Peter wrote of how he expressed those things, right? Here's First Peter. His great mercy has been given to us and new birth into the living hope, resurrected Savior through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He always points back to his living Savior, this resurrection that changed everything. Keep going. You are not like that. He's talking to the people of God. He says, you're chosen people, royal priest, a holy nation. You're God's own possession. And as a result of that, you're able to show the others, show other people the goodness of God. For he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Keep going. Once you were, you had not, no identity as a people, but now you're God's people. And once you'd received no mercy, but now you have received God's mercy. Because understanding mercy and understanding this undeserved mercy and unmerited grace of God and how it affects you is a big deal in terms of how you show the goodness of God to others. Keep going. This is in chapter 4. There is no shame to suffer for being called a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. You know the guy who wrote that? The guy who wrote that is a guy who lived several days filled with a shame and a guilt of denying his Savior where he had abandoned everything he had given his life for. Went back to fishing and thanked Jesus he got restored by Jesus. And here's Peter telling the church, look, don't you ever be ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. That's his personal, unexplainable, like, Guys, I wish I could tell you the depths of sorrow that I experienced in denying him. Don't you ever, 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 ever deny. It is an absolute privilege to be called a Christian. It is a privilege to wear the name. Because that's our goal. Share the good news and respond with the reason why. Let's pray together. Thank you, Jesus, for... Um, just the opportunity today to confess to you that, that God, sometimes we just, we just have that human spirit that naturally lives with anxiety and fear of how people will see us and view us. And, and, and so, God, we don't necessarily live with that intentionality every day, especially within our top five of sharing the good news and and, and responding when we're asked questions, responding with the true answers, the hope that we have and our faith in you. So God, over the next few weeks, as we dive into your word, as we, as we long to kind of bridge that gap and close that gap between who we say you are and who you are as Lord of our life and how we live our life and how we share the goodness of God with others. God, that people would see that there's no gap there, that, they would, that, that we would begin to live these lives that are truly unassailable. 
so that even if we are persecuted, even if we are you know, put down, even if we are viewed differently, God, that, that people would be ashamed of their own words because they see the blessing and favor that is not only in our lives, but the one, that, that same blessing and favor that we choose to then share with everyone else. God, just convict us where we need to be convicted, challenge our hearts where we need to be challenged. And God, encourage us today as we leave this place, changed, transformed, renewed in our mind as to how you've called us to live. And we pray all this in your name, Jesus. Amen.